It's December 2019. Do you enjoy staying up to date with current literature? Need a convenient way to digest the latest and greatest articles published in Wilderness and Environmental Medicine? Well, welcome to Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live. Christmas will be good this year. I'm going to get two front teeth. Well, I'm taking over. If you like the best pre-digested literature, we have it right here. What do we have on the table? A quick talk about climate change and health. Improvised medicine. Hey, get away from that mic. That's my stuff. Oops. Okay, you go to bed now. And eat only one mealworm for dessert tonight. And go walk the cat first. Anyways, we are going to talk a little bit about climate change and an improvised medicine workshop we did at the ASEP in Denver. That's the American College of Emergency Physicians. Then we're going to talk about two clinical practice guidelines, one on frostbite by the main author, Scott McIntosh. And then I'm going to talk probably about 30 minutes. It's a little long, but I think it's really good stuff on water disinfection. That is the latest CPG on that. So hang on. Let's do this. Into the atmosphere, to the forest clouds, and it comes down on our land as precipitation. That's how we get our snow and our water. Maybe not believe in climate change or... First, a little quick note on the medical effects of climate change. Now, I was asked to give a talk at ASEP in Denver this past month along with Dr. Scott McIntosh of Utah and Barbara Block of University of Colorado. Now, this idea with the medical effects of climate change, gee, that was really quite a subject I had to undertake because, yes, I'm very familiar with climate change in and of itself, but finding the medical effects was something I wasn't used to. So fortunately, Jay Lemery and Paul Auerbach came out with a really good book. It's called Environmedics. It was published back in 2017. And if you want to learn more about this, I really highly recommend this book. It tends to be a little more on the climate change belief side versus the climate change skeptic. I think it's excellent. Now, having said that, let me tell you something. See, climate change has been somewhat divisive in our political system and whatnot, and even in some of the scientific community. Well, is it climate change? And if it's climate change, is it a natural phenomenon, which happens with Earth cycles, or is it caused by us, those dastardly humans? And along with some of these ideas come fairly radical, how should I say it, uh, ways to deal with climate change, solutions, if you will. And a lot of these solutions are either untenable or they're promulgated by a group of people that actually don't live the life themselves. So my take on all the climate change stuff is, be a good steward of our environment, be a good steward of the earth, be a good steward of the wilderness, because I think a lot of you that are listening to this are probably already great stewards and you will advocate for not trashing our environment, keeping it up, and that is great. But as far as some other things like our earth is going to end in five years, well, you have to take a modicum of skepticism with that. And again, my plan is hope for the best, but always be ready for the worst. And in this case, if we don't plan, our patients and even ourselves, we will suffer as well. So what I initially did is I organized a conference, which was an hour, such that I'd have two people pitted against each other. It was kind of like a talk show, if you will. And so Barbara was the climate change believer, and she presented a lot of 
great information with regard to why it is believed that there is this actual climate change and it is mostly caused by humans. However, I had Scott do a counter-argument, meaning, hey, climate change, this is ridiculous. The models are faulty, the statistic gathering is faulty, and it was actually very entertaining. And of course, these may not reflect their actual beliefs, but I thought just to attract the crowd, let's do something totally crazy. And then we were able to talk about some of the effects. And if you were willing to and able to and are really interested, I recommend this climate change circle that was published by the CDC and is also in Jay's book in 2017. In short, it basically discusses some of the climate changes that are happening and some of the health issue offshoots. So if you can imagine a circle with a donut hole and in the middle of this donut hole or on the sides you have increased carbon emissions, greenhouse gases. Well, that in and of itself produces things like smog and it can produce respiratory ailments as well as maybe some long-term effects such as cancer or whatnot. But you also may have the trapped heat, the greenhouse gas effect. And if you have increased heat into the atmosphere, you're going to get these not only droughts, but you're going to get heat waves, which are going to be prolonged, causing heat-related illnesses as well as cardiovascular issues in susceptible populations. But that's not all, folks, because it may not necessarily be the heat. I mean, come on, we had great snowfall here in New Mexico and Colorado last year. Well, it doesn't really mean that heat in and of itself is going to be the only thing. You're going to get these increased storms. What you're doing is you're putting increased energy into the environment, into the climate. And so what we have seen is our storms maybe are more prolonged. Maybe they're more severe. There isn't really any statistics saying that they're worse. There's actually some really bad storms that happened a while ago, and you can look that up on your own. However, the flooding has been a real issue. And with flooding comes all kinds of amazing things. Immediate aftermaths will be drowning. It will be trauma. But then infectious diseases, and not just skin diseases, but you've got to think of the raw sewage, the effluent. And I actually did a very visual, how should I say, demonstration of this, where I took a blender and I mixed this sauce, if you will. I put some powder, which represented drought and just dry atmosphere. You know, you think of Ethiopia. And then I mixed it with some, what I call industrial waste, fertilizer, whatever you want. And it was just a little bit of black coffee, just powdered coffee. And then into that came another blob or several blobs of this peanut butter I had. And that represented the raw sewage, the raw affluent. And of course, with raw sewage, you have bacteria. And then we added some water, which represented the flood. Then everything was mixed nicely and I drank it. Yum, yum, yum. And that was just a visual demonstration of why infectious diseases are increased. So we discussed some of the mosquito-borne diseases, which we are seeing are happening at more northern latitudes. And when I say mosquito-borne diseases, I'm talking about, yeah, maybe malaria, but dengue because dengue doesn't have a treatment. You may have vaccines, but they're not very good. There's these weird viruses such as chikungunya, as well as Zika virus, and of course the West Nile virus. 
And I won't have time to elaborate much into some of these disease processes, but if you're interested, I'd be happy to talk about it or have somebody talk about it at a later time. But you're also going to see the diarrheal diseases increase, and that may take the form of typhoid or cholera. And so cholera was discussed quite nicely, and we discussed some of the treatments with cholera. And this whole thing was very informative to people. And then we had to talk about some of the odd effects of what we would call climate change, increased amounts of wildland fires, and the paradox of having really nice snowfalls, but yet in several of our large glacier areas, we're seeing glaciers recede. And so this became a very important type of topic. So avalanches, yes, it seems to have been increased over the past year. I mean, we've seen quite a lot of activity here in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado, but it may be because of better reporting. We have to parse that out. However, we've also seen some pretty crazy wildland fires as well. So definitely the topic was very fun to do, and it generated a lot of great questions. And if you're interested in more talks with climate change, I will actually talk to the climate change expert. Kudos to Bob Quinn, who really gave us a lot of information on how to prepare for this, as well as Jay Lemery and Paul Auerbach. So there it is. Take care of the environment, be great stewards, and that's it. Yeah. Who knows what? See if the handle works here. Turn it that close. Okay, I don't know. I've never done this before. And then pressurizing them. And then. Let's see if this works. Ivy coconuts. Oh, no way. No way. Is that working? Magic. Yeah. Okay, hold that up while you're tall. Man. So this is how to... I have with me Risa, Risa Garcia. Dr. Garcia is our UNM Wilderness Austere and International Emergency Medicine Fellow. Welcome. It's great to have you. Hope you're enjoying your fellowship. I certainly am. It's been a good year so far. Risa and I just finished a, how do I say, an improvised medicine lab over at the American College of Emergency Physicians. This is a huge meeting of emergency physicians, not just around the US, but also Canada, actually around the world. This is international. And we had something like, what, 25, 30 people in our lab, mm -hmm. which is the maximum. Yes. Yeah, because any more, it much. goes crazy. Way too, too mucho. So it ends up that this improvised medicine is kind of part of what we do, but this has actually never been formalized in a laboratory outside of showing people how to transport people who are hurt, splints and things like that. What are some of the things that uh, we did that were kind of unique to our lab? All right, thank MacGyver, thank, thank, thank. We kind of went through sort of things that you can use in each part of the March algorithm. So we're talking about massive hemorrhage, airway, we're talking about our breathing circulation, and our wound care, hypothermia, 
some of the really interesting things and things that people really liked, I think, were the improvised airway techniques. And that's things like how to improvise an NPA or an OPA, how to improvise a barrier device for a mouth-to-mouth. And that's really important. People, I think, are always wondering, well, how do I give a patient mouth-to-mouth out where we don't actually have something? Mouth-to-mouth? How do we improvise on that? We just don't put the lips on somebody's You just kind of breathe mouth. over the mouth. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just and hope that, they, hope that they get her. No. So yeah. actually, you take a, you take a glove, uh, you know, what, what you would normally use for your PPE, and you can cut off one or two of the fingers, or even three of the fingers. Put the cut-off fingers in the patient's mouth. Fold the rest of the glove you're imagining, folding the, the palm, the hand side of your, of your glove over the patient's nose and their chin and then you can use that. That's a good sort of one-way valve to use so that hopefully you don't get vomit in your own mouth if the patient should awake. Right, and actually uh, we have a movie, we've tested this before, with somebody who swallows juicy oatmeal and then we have the other person do this improvised mouth-to-mouth with this glove and it seems to work. The person who's insufflating, doing the so-called rescue breaths, ends up not having oatmeal in their mouth. I know it's gross. Don't recommend it at home unless you know the person really well. Exactly. Now, what was interesting, here's what I like. We showed standard intubation. We showed how to do nasotracheal intubation. We did a teaching on digital tactile intubation. But were there ways that you saw of interest that we were able to improvise on a bag valve mask, a BVM? Because if you don't have a BVM, you're kind of hosed. Sure. You know, we looked at using like a bike pump, which as long as you get that good seal on your tube, which was really fun seeing our participants try to seal, seal their tubes, you know, actually probably gave enough insufflation for bagging. You could use a bellows. Not, I mean, not many people probably carry (laughs) bellows, Um, (laughs) but that was also an interesting improvised of using a BVM. Well, if you're in a medieval fort, absolutely. You're going to have bellows. And it actually ended up that we did try the bike pump and it seemed to work with an adequate seal. I mean, we had to, I think, duct tape it. Mm -hmm. Then the bellows actually work. But one of the things that I noticed with the bellows is you're getting about 400 cc's of air in. So if you've got 200 cc's of dead space, which is obligatory, you're only getting 200 cc's of insufflation. I don't know if it would work on a real live patient, but... True. You know what's interesting though? So we had this guy from France. He's actually the president of the European Society of Emergency Medicine, uh, Abdo Khoury. And he said, oh yeah, I've heard of that too. And it ends up that somewhere around the 1850s, that was standard CPR, stick a bellows down somebody's throat, and that's how they would ventilate people. Well, if you put the bellows actually in their mouth, that eliminates some dead space. And that's what they did. Yes, exactly. But I don't know if that's a good idea. Probably not. Now, one of the other things that you may not have seen, but I had one of those raft inflators. And that actually gave a pretty good volume for the insufflation and whatnot. Again, if you do this on a human, I suppose if you had to, I think the pumps were really good. But, you know, you have to have enough ventilatory space beyond the 200 cc's of dead space. I'm looking through some of the other things that we did. And one of the things that was interesting is this IV coconut. Yes. Did you see that? Yes. Yeah. The IV coconut was fascinating. What did I do? What did we do? We <laughs> essentially tried to use a coconut as IV fluids. That means spiking the coconut as you would a bag IV. of IV fluids. Yeah.
And with a little vent hole using a needle, it ran like an IV should run. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, you know, we did a little bit of on-the-spot research as to what actual pH and composition coconut milk is. And the pH is surprisingly low. We found out it was around 5. 5, ooh. Yes. Maybe a little bit iffy as far as actually placing coconut milk in someone's veins. Yeah, and the other thing I noticed, although this particular spike had a filter, is that there is some colloid mm -hmm. stuff coming out, particulate matter. And what I was interested in doing is what I was telling the participants is, all right, this seemed to work. It would be interesting to culture this because I don't know, is there bacteria in there? I mean, I would assume not, but who knows? Yeah, we, I think we would assume that it would be a sterile environment, but we don't really know. Don't use a cracked coconut. But And the reason I thought of that is because when I vented the coconut, it let out this hiss. And I was thinking, ooh, this could be some sort of an anaerobic bacterial thing going on. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> mixed with the proper hardening agent makes a unique version of Russian crazy glue. If I get out of this, I'll be sure to mail them the recipe. We moved outside because it was such a beautiful day. So there are two other things that we talked about. What was one of the things that was on your mind? Um, so one of the things that I think everyone really liked was improvised suturing. You might not always have suture material out in the wilderness. We talked about using things like fishing line. We talked about using different materials. But also, in addition to that, talking about what to use for a needle to actually do your suturing. So biggest thing was using an 18-gauge needle to pre-thread your suture material. In other words, put your suture material all the way through your needle. Use your needle then to suture the wound, thinking of it a little bit like a sewing machine in that you're pushing your suture material all the way through. And there's a few ways to do this, and our participants actually had a fun time trying out a couple of different ways. You can pull your suture all the way through once you've, you've made a loop and tie it in your regular simple interrupted fashion cut your suture, start all over again with your 18-gauge needle, threading it with your suture material. One participant did try essentially making loops on one side of your wound and then using the loops, using the end of your suture material to thread all the loops and pull it tight to oppose your edges, which actually worked pretty well as, as also. And that would be without ever taking the suture material completely out of your of your needle and then truly using it a little bit more like a sewing machine. So very interesting improvised ways of suturing. Yeah, it seemed to work. And then lastly, we had a few cow's legs because ASEP wanted us to show how to do a field amputation. What did you think of that? Um, if you were in a hurry to do an amputation, I would not recommend it. <laughs> Very well, yeah. It's, it's kind of, it was a guillotine type of amputation. We talked about it. And if you folks are interested, just give us a holler and we'd be happy to put this on video. And you will probably see a video on the improvised suture technique or techniques that we taught. So, ta-ta. Time to move. Time to move. Improvise. Improvise. Yeah, let's go.
It sure is cold outside, but you'd never know it's freezing judging by what these college students are wearing. Why aren't you wearing a coat tonight? Because it ruins the outfit. It ruins the outfit. But I know I should be wearing a coat. 20 degrees. It ruins the outfit, as we all know. Like, it's just not a good look. It's great to be in the office, and this office happens to be in a Tesla because <laughs> we're in Silverton, Colorado. We're speakers at this uh, Third Mountain Medicine Symposium, but this place is just teeming with tourists. We just couldn't find a place to talk. Anyway, it's great to have you on the hey, podcast. Yeah, good to see you, Dale. Good to spend the last couple of days with you. It's been a great conference. Yeah, right on. So. What I wanted to do is talk a little bit about the frostbite clinical practice guidelines that are going to be coming out. One of the topics I had talked about, but I wanted to get your input on it since you're the lead author on this. So tell us a little bit about what this frostbite guideline entails. So it it entails putting together as much literature as we could gather in frostbite research, frostbite guidelines, frostbite management that people have put together over the last you know de- number of decades, and pulling together a number of experts to figure out what are the most useful parts of these guidelines for both clinicians and for people who are out in the field. How do we both prevent frostbite injuries, which is the most important thing, because as we may talk about in a bit, that once you have damaged cells and damaged tissue, it's, it's hard to bring back things back to life. And to also talk about some of the treatments, some of the standard treatments, and some of the newer therapies that are being implemented. So has there been much change since the initial work that you guys started way back? I think it was in 2010. Yeah, so the first part the initial guidelines, when we published the initial guidelines, the therapies, the emergent therapies for frostbite included just some preliminary and, um, you know, research, some basic research and low numbers of people being treated for frostbite using TPA and maybe a little bit about Iloprost. Now we've gained more information about Iloprost and TPA in these guidelines. It's a little bit more concrete about what TPA and Iloprost can and can't do. Well, it sounded like with regard to the hospital treatment, so there's a few things that we can do and maybe we could work backwards from hospital to pre-hospital. So with the hospital treatment, the TPA, whether it's given intraarterially or just, you know, IV, has a fairly good recommendation, what we would call 1C, and I'll, you know, guide people into what all that means, which sounds pretty good, but this Iloprost has like a 1B recommendation, which is a lot higher, but my understanding is we still can't get it in this country? Yeah, well, IV Iloprost is not available in the United States, and that's unfortunate because the folks in Europe have been using IV Iloprost for, you know, uh, probably almost a decade with really good results, and so we have inhaled Iloprost, but we don't know if that has the same effects, and so, you know, research, I haven't researched exactly why IV Iloprost is not available, but I have a, I have a feeling it's, you know, drug companies and marketing sure. and uh, how their ability to recoup their costs are. Now, when we go into the pre-hospital, there's going to be two types of patients. Obviously, there's going to be somebody that we would want to evacuate, but then we have a potential subset of patients that we can't immediately 
warm up. We're going to be stuck out in the backcountry. So should I just go ahead and start rewarming that patient, put that guy's feet in the fire? <laughs> <laughs> well, fi fire is never a good idea because you can't regulate any sort of temperature in, uh, with, with feet over the coals or hand, hands over the coals. You can't regulate that temperature. At the same time, when people are frostbitten, they have a lot of decreased sensation. And so you can't tell if you're getting burned or just getting warmed up as you should. So we recommend that if you are going to warm, rewarm someone in the field that you use a water bath. You can do that in a, in a pot or, or any other thing, uh, you know, like a basin if you have one. But it's really important to have it at the correct temperature. And, and the guidelines say 37 to 39 degrees which is basically jacuzzi temperature. And so that's that's much much more easy for people to feel and to guide their treatment. And for the, uh, you wanna make sure that if someone does, or if you do initiate rewarming in the field, that you are almost assured that that person is not going to get cold and possibly frostbitten again, because we know that repeated, repeated cycles of freezing, thawing, and freezing, thawing again is much more damaging than just one cycle. The, the prostaglandins and a lot of the inflammatory mediators have such a more profound effect if you have these multiple cycles of freezing and then thawing over and over and over versus one, um, versus one cycle. So if you are going to thaw someone in the field, you have to be absolutely certain that that person is not going to have a risk of being frozen again. Right, because it's kind of like uh, defrosting a piece of meat out of the freezer. You decide to defrost it, but then you change your mind and say, I'm going to put that in the freezer for the second time, and then you defrost it again. And it's not meat. It's meat soup or some glop like that. <laughs> yeah, that the cells just start to denature at that point. It just becomes a, a, you know, a, mess, of, a, a mess of unformed tissue. <laughs> Go back to the Wilderness Environmental Medicine Journal back in 2012. There's some great lessons from history, and this one is Frostbite and Other Cold Injuries in the Heroic Age of Antarctic Exploration by Henry Gulley. And this is a note, people still repeat these mistakes, and so do not do them. Well, here's what the article says. I am London Skull of the Swedish Expedition, early 1900, and one man, the big... Oh, big yes, the big toe, they're hard, hard and shriveled, yeah? I pinched them, and I pricked them, but he felt nothing, so I took an abation of snow and rubbed them. I rub and rub. In this case, the treatment was very good, yeah? On later expedition was shackled, and even though I knew frostbite should be rubbed in snow, when I was very young, they taught me this. I saw frostbite skin come off. Yes, this is very terrible. And snow is hard as sand, yeah? Charcot says they use gentle rewarming of the hands or the cheat or done by placing them in the armpit of another person or yourself. But if you have the foot needing rewarming, you must put it on somebody's belly. This is very uncomfortable for the belly of the person. And every now and then this had to happen. And you see, 
What I would do is I would rub the frostbite, but I found that this was not very good. People would do very bad if you rub the hand or the foot that had frostbite. So do not do this. So do not rub frozen hands or feet in snow. Do not do it. Stop it now. Right. And one last interesting question I might have as far as a pre-hospital consideration. This may not be well parsed out. If you have a person who's got frostbitten toe versus, let's say, frostbitten foot, would you recommend that patient to walk out on their own? Well, that's that's a good question, and it's not something that we have good information on. There has been a couple additional papers in this last five-year uh, five-year interval that have shown that it probably is okay to walk on frozen tissue if you need to to get out with with little with with less damage than we thought to begin with obviously that's not ideal because if you're uh, if you want to try to keep the trauma less on these very fragile cells then it's best to not walk on them at all but it's looking like it's less damaging than we thought 5 years ago Well, there's a lot of information, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, in the clinical practice guideline on frostbite. We urge you to read it. We're not going to give you all the secrets. So if you got more questions, read the paper. We'll see you, Scott. Have a good nine-hour drive. I only got four. (laughs) Thanks, Daryl. Good to see you and good to hanging with you the last couple days. Right on. See you. Bye. Let's talk about the clinical practice guideline concerning water disinfection for wilderness, international travel, and austere situations by Backer et al. Now, keep in mind, in all these clinical practice guidelines, well, the authors searched for the literature on whatever topic that we happen to be talking about, in this case, water disinfection. And they're looking at the relevancy through the PubMed database, for instance. And then what happens with these clinical practice guidelines is they end up getting graded according to a classification scheme from the American College of Chess Physicians. Now, to review the grading scheme classification, in case you're not current, there's a grade 1 and a grade 2. Grade 1 has a strong recommendation for whatever, and grade 2 carries a weak recommendation for whatever. Then there's a level of evidence which is classified according to the study design result, consistency, and the evidence directness where you might see an A grade, which is a high level of evidence backing up whatever recommendation. Grade B is a moderate level of evidence, and a grade C carries a low level of evidence, maybe case reports and whatnot. So if you have a grade 1A, that means that recommendation, the thing that they are talking about, in this case, a methodology for water disinfection, is a strong recommendation, really good, with a high level of evidence. Now, on the other hand, you have maybe a recommendation that's 2C, that is weak, and it has a low amount of evidence backing up that particular thing that happens to be an intervention or whatever. A grade three level, probably not a strong or weak recommendation, but a recommendation that could really, really be bad. But that grade doesn't exist in the schema. So there you have it. The article makes a disclaimer, this article, that the effectiveness of specific disinfectants and methods is mostly 
lab-based or population-based public health research or randomized household trials of water disinfection. Now, there are some wilderness studies and international travel settings uh, that have been studied that are in the literature that are added to this mix. But the water treatment techniques and the recommendations, on the other hand, are not evaluated for removal of chemicals and toxins per se, although it does come up. So this paper deals mostly with infectious agents, and these infectious agents have a potential for waterborne transmission, including bacteria, viruses, protozoa, and some non-protozoan parasites. The authors do briefly discuss E. coli and Vibrio cholera, which are capable of surviving in tropical waters, and so the tropics are risky for these bacteria. Bacteria, bacteria, bacteria. Now, enteric bacterial and viral pathogens will survive in temperate waters for only several days, but some species, those hardy species such as the infamous E. coli O157H7, survives 12 weeks, folks, at 25 degrees Celsius. Shigella, Salmonella, Hepatitis A, and Cryptosporidium stays alive for long periods in cold, cold water and can survive weeks, I'm telling you, weeks even when frozen in water. That is crazy. And then, of course, there are the highly virulent organisms that need very, very little concentrations in the water, such as Giardia, Cryptosporidium, Shigella, Hepatitis A, Enterohemorrhagic E. coli, and of course, that famous norovirus, which is the leading viral disease risk in water. That's full. I'm talking full of human waste. <laughs> With regard to water treatment methods, three terms are used in the paper. Disinfection, 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 which is the desired result of field water treatment. That means that destructive or harmful microorganisms are removed, and so you've decreased the risk of illness. Purification, purification, purification similar to disinfection, but it could also mean the removal of organic or inorganic chemicals and particulate matter, aka junk, to improve the color, the taste, and the odor of l'eau potable. Potable, potable, potable. That means water that's drinkable, but it's technically to suggest that a water source over a period of time, on an average, has had minimal microbial hazards, but that's over time. So I don't know how much that helps, but there you have it. Now the efficacy of disinfection with regard to particle size is determined with hard particles or beads of given diameter of the pore of the filter that you're concerned about. But of course, you can just push that pump hard and those microorganisms that are nice and soft and cushy and flexible and compressible under pressure are going to go right through the holes of the pore of that filter, and there you have it. That would not be good. Now, the EPA of the United States doesn't test or specify laboratories specifically, and I guess they don't get together. So portable water treatment devices and their claims for microbiologic reduction are based on, oh, you guessed it, consensus performance standards. So buyer beware, but these recommendations are generally okay. Now, described in this CPG, this clinical practice guideline, are pre-disinfection techniques, which include clarification. We're basically getting rid of all that junk, and that can be done with adsorption, sedimentation, and coagulation flocculation. 
Of course, pre-filtering through fine woven cloth or paper filters are also ways to do this pre-disinfection, pre-filtering, whatever you want to call it. Standard disinfection methods are going to include heat, ultraviolet light, and filtration, as well as some chemicals. And then mix in a different kind of species disinfectant, aka electrolysis. That's discussed. Now, before we get on with the entire topic, which I will obviously abbreviate for this podcast, in case your brain happens to be turning to mush or it wasn't pre-filtered properly, well, let me go ahead and give you the summary of field water disinfection techniques, which, if you are so motivated, you will find in Table 2 of this article. The authors basically summarize the basic methodologies, that is heat, filtration, halogen chemical disinfection, and chlorine dioxide slash photocatalytic. Heat, excellent for everything. Bacteria, viruses, amoebas, giardia, cryptosporidium, nematodes, aka worms, and cercaria, those schistosomes, great for it all. Boil, 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 baby. Filtration is great for bacteria, giardia, and those other amoebas. But filtration can also be good for cryptosporidium and those wormy schistosomes, given the right pore size, which we will talk about. As far as viruses, though, not so great, and most filters make no claim for viruses per se. However, ultrafiltration with hollow fiber technology and reverse osmosis appears to be really good for getting rid of those darn viruses. Halogens, they're pretty good for bacteria. They're pretty good for viruses as well as Giardia, but not so hot, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, for crypto, cryptosporidium. So watch out for that well water if you use iodine or chlorine. Iodine is not wonderful in preventing algae from growing. Halogens, nematode eggs, well, it appears that eggs are not terribly susceptible to halogens, but they do at least have a low risk of waterborne transmission. As far as chlorine dioxide and photocatalytic methodologies, well, excellent for bacteria, viruses, amoebas, and crypto, the dreaded cryptosporidium. You know what I like about this paper too is that it discusses improvised water disinfection techniques. So that's useful for you people that are into austere medicine and survival. And so if you're bold enough, come join me and let's go through some details. First, should you disinfect that water source? Well, it depends where you're at. If you're traveling in developing countries or you're contemplating drinking that water in a wilderness area where there's possible agricultural things going on, animals hanging out, or upstream human activity where you have no idea what's going on, or you're in a disaster situation that's affecting that drinking water source, oh, yes, you betcha. That evidence for that Grade 1A, muy good. If you're in a wilderness setting without domestic animal concerns and there's little to no wildlife hanging out or human activity, then maybe you can get away with things and just drink that water as is. But the evidence grade is 2B. Mm-hmm. So why even bother do this thing called pre-filtering or pre-disinfection or clarification? Well, because you want to facilitate disinfection the best you can by filtration or chemical treatment. Now, to further elaborate, cloudy water, turbid water, well, it won't only clog your filters, but it may render chemical treatment either ineffective or may require increased chemical. Yum, 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 yuck. The authors discuss turbidity. That is basically the amount of junk clouding the water, and it's measured in some weird unit called NTU, AKA nephilometric turbidity units. 
I'm not going to get into that. You can Google that if you want. Oh, and there's a technique called adsorption, not absorption, but adsorption. Again, Google it if you don't know the difference. Granular activated carbon or charcoal is widely used for this process called adsorption. When you disrupt charcoal's regular array of carbon bonds, you make the charcoal very able to adsorb dissolved chemicals. Yes, chemicals. We're talking about chemicals, even though we said we weren't. So that carbon filtration can actually help remove certain toxins and chemicals as well. In fact, it's a really good way to remove toxic organic and inorganic chemicals from water, such as disinfection byproducts, and to improve odor and taste. And here's a little pro tip. If you want to remove certain impurities, heavy metals, and maybe, oh, I don't know, petroleum-based products, really gross stuff, maybe even pesticides, use distillation. But that's not discussed here directly. Using carbon and activated carbon and putting it in your filters, well, there were these old water filters that had carbon and iodine impregnated into the filter. But the problem with those was first, the water would go through some type of filtration to get rid of the bacteria. Bravo. You still have viruses, possibly. Well, the water would pass through the iodine to get rid of those nasty viruses. But the problem is you may not have had enough contact time. So you had to be careful because if the iodine didn't have that contact time, well, you remove the iodine by then passing the water through the carbon, which rids you of the iodine, but not those darn viruses. And that is no bueno. That is hypo bueno. The idea remains that activated charcoal can make water safer after chemical disinfection and more palatable by removing the disinfection byproducts, the yucky taste, and as well as some of those pesticides and even some heavy metals. And of course, chlorine also is removed, and so is that taste. However, activated charcoal does not kill microorganisms and isn't for microbial removal. So, in fact, these bacteria love to latch onto that charcoal into the little nooks and crannies microscopically, and so they become resistant to chlorination because chlorine is absorbed by that activated charcoal. Coagulation and flocculation. That does not mean whipping yourself or somebody else because that is flagellation, not flocculation. Coagulation flocculation, on the other hand, is a technique which has been used since very ancient times, and it's used in municipal water treatment. It aggregates small suspended particles, and then you add a chemical like alum or bauxite to help those particles stick together by electrostatic and ionic forces. Flocculation further promoted by forming larger particles by gentle mixing. I'll have a vodka martini shaken not stirred. I'll have a vodka martini shaken not stirred. Lime or iron salts are also things that you can use as coagulants. This process, this coagulation flocculation technique, it can remove 60 to 98% of microorganisms, heavy metals, and some chemicals and minerals, but it can also reduce the needed amount of chemical disinfectant because you're getting rid of that turbidity. So it isn't, again, a solo technique, but it can help diminish the amount of chemical disinfectant needed after. So how much alum do you add in the field? Well, if you have alum, well, an eighth of a teaspoon or a large pinch for every four liters of water. You stir and you shake for one minute. I'll have a vodka. I'll have a vodka. You look very worried. Uh, so do you. And then you agitate gently and frequently for five minutes to assist the flocculation further. And then you add more flocculant if the water remains turbid. After about 30 minutes of settling, put the water through a filter. And to be sure that disinfection is thorough, another type of disinfection, such as a halogen disinfection technique, is recommended. Now, if you had to improvise, well, you can use calcium oxide, maybe burnt bones, 
calcium oxide, which is basically lime. Yes, lime. Or you can use potash from wood ash. There's some other things such as bleaching powder, baking powder, or fine white ash from the campfire. That's also suggested. There seems to be some evidence behind all this, but the improvised techniques may only be an evidence to see. So buyer beware. Heat and boiling. Can we talk? You can probably remember in the old days that there were certain dictums that stated things such as you had to keep water boiling for 10 minutes to achieve proper disinfection. This has not been substantiated recently, and there's a nice little table in the article that discusses boiling temperature at various altitudes. So even if you were at 5,700 meters or 19,000 feet of elevation, the boiling point of water is about 80 to 81 degrees Celsius, 180 degrees Fahrenheit. That's more than enough heat for disinfection. So incidentally, that elevation is below Everest Base Camp, which is a veritable silly, uh, silly, yeah, city. That was a Freudian slip. Sorry about that. So enteric pathogens are killed within seconds by boiling water, which is very rapid at temperatures greater than 60 degrees Celsius. So all you need to take in your water is a boiling point to where the boiling just starts to roll. The water is starting to roll. You're starting to just get a boil, just a flashpoint boiling. It's boiling rapidly. That should be enough. You don't have to wait 10 minutes. Just boil the water to where it's boiling. It takes seconds with boiling water to kill those enteric pathogens because the temperatures have to be greater than 60 degrees Celsius. So just get it rolling. Okay, what if you don't have a reliable method of water treatment? You're in some strange hotel in some strange country? Well, tap water kept hot in a tank for 30 minutes, which would be too hot to keep your finger in for longer than five seconds is a good test, but ouch but the temperature is probably at least 55 degrees Celsius, but don't burn yourself. Now, this could be a reasonable alternative, but it's a little bit risky and a little less useful for a hotel that uses on-demand water heaters without a hot water tank. And you might have to find out if that's the case. That's a bit of a hassle. So again, beware. What about ultraviolet light, such as the SteriPen or even the sun? Well, the germicidal effect of ultraviolet light is by disrupting the nucleic acid of the microorganism, depending on the light intensity and exposure time. The wavelength quoted for ideal disruption of those nucleic acids is 200 to 280 nanometer. That's the best wavelength for that ultraviolet. That's the UVC light. However, you're going to have to have the UV waves hit the organism, and if that water is full of particulate matter, if it's turbid, if it's otherwise grody, is this a no, but your face is. Those organisms can hide and render this method ineffective. Bacteria in protozoa require lower doses than enteric viruses and spores. But all viruses, including that notorious Hepe and norovirus, are susceptible. Giardia and crypto are sensitive, probably because of their huge, large sizes. Now, what about using improvised techniques for ultraviolet, that is? Well, I've seen this done in the Philippines where you take transparent bottles, and they have to be clear bottles, clear plastic or clear glass. And underneath, you have to have a dark surface, very, very dark, like black. All of this, all of this apparatus, this assembly is exposed to the sun, the bright sun, for at least four hours with a little bit of agitation once in a while. And that seems to work with an evidence grade of 1B, yes, 1B, although the authors aren't so sure about if it reduces childhood diarrhea rates. And so they give that a grade to be for reducing childhood diarrhea rate. I don't know what to tell you, but if that's all you got, knock yourself out. But keep in mind too that this technique using the sun for ultraviolet is only good for a day. So the next day, 
If you decide to store the water, you're going to have to start over the next day. But overall, UV light is a pretty effective means of water disinfection, and it gets a whopping evidence grade of 1A. Shall we talk filters? Sure. Now, I didn't realize this, but after backpacks and tents, portable water treatment products are the third highest intended purchase of outdoor equipment. And I quote that from the article. That's pretty amazing. Keep in mind that filters, although they're simple and they require no holding time, well, they will eventually clog from suspended particulate matter, even from clear streams. So that's why I like to do a pre-filtration technique, even with a bandana if I'm filtering from a stream. Eventually, that filter is going to clog. That increases necessary pressure required to perform a filtration, which could possibly have those organisms pushed into those little pores. Well, keep in mind that cracks, eroded channels in a filter are also not good because you're going to end up with unfiltered water going through those defects. And there is a possibility that bacteria can grow on those filter medias. The funguses can also grow, and a lot of manufacturers end up putting silver impregnated into that filter to prevent this growth. But it may not be totally effective, but we don't know if it's harmful. So there it is. Decide on your own whether you want bacteria to team in your pores. Mm, that doesn't sound good. And that doesn't sound good to me. When in doubt, throw it out, replace. Spend those big bucks. Use those dividends. Portable filters that we take on our backpacking trips are either microfilters, ultrafilters, nano filters or reverse osmosis filters good for oceanic voyages and we're probably not going to take those guys with us on a backpacking trip but micro filters filter things down to 0.1 or a tenth of a micrometer ultra filters remove particles as small as 0.01 or a hundredth of a micrometer and nano filters have a pore size of get this one one thousandths of a micrometer or less Reverse osmosis filters has a pore size of 0.0001 micrometers or less. That is way awesome. But pressure is needed for that filter to work. Often, waterborne pathogens blob onto larger particles, and so they clump together, making those things easier to remove. Now, you might run across something called hollow fiber technology. What happens here? Well, funny you should ask. Bundles of tube fibers whose pore size can be engineered to achieve ultrafiltration with viral removal is used. That's what that means. Large surface areas allow those hollow fiber filters to have relatively high flow rates at lower pressure, so it's easier to pump. There's some interesting details about this in the article, but I just want to give you a little bit of a nice summary. If you're worried about those schistosomes or that weird drancunculus which hang out in Lake Victoria and you are gunning, your Jones and to take a sip out of Lake Victoria, well, coffee filters or a fine cloth or double thickness cloths will suffice. So bring your coffee filter. I'm sure there's other things in there and that may not be enough. If you're worried about nematode eggs, those are nasty, a big old worm. If you're worried about Entamoeba histolyticosis, if you're worried about Giardia, Cryptosporidium, those cysts that is, or those nasty Vibrios, those Campylobacters, those E. coli's, microfilters are going to do just fine. Viruses are nothing to fool around with. So I recommend an ultra filter or a nano filter if you've got to go for it big or reverse osmosis. Those are going to work the best, but you're probably going to be just fine with your ultra filter. Hollow fiber filters with 0.02 micrometer pores, those are going to filter viruses just fine. 
If you've got this reverse osmosis filters, well, they can get rid of those nasty chemicals, heavy metals, and they could be used for desalination. Now some filters combine a porous filter material with other things. I mentioned iodine earlier. It's not so easy to find given that there was excess iodine or viral breakthrough in the effluent. So if you're buying a filter, look at the package inserts carefully and do your research. What if you had to improvise a filter? Well, you can reduce the bacteria and viral count by 85%, up to 85% in larger bacteria. But parasites, those bigger parasites, you can reduce the parasite count by 99%. So reduce the bacteria and viral count up to 85%. And there's no comment as to which viruses. Maybe it's HEPA, I sure hope so, but I wouldn't trust. This is not terribly reliable. So yeah, good luck. What can I say? Ceramic filters are a cost-effective means of household disinfection if you had to do a lot of filtration for a good amount of people. And that's used in developing countries because ceramic clay is widely available. It's cheap. So you might see these things in homes and you can go ahead and Google that to just show yourself or satisfy yourself on how that would look. What if you have a biosand filter? Well, those are actually used even currently in municipal plants and sand filters can be very good at reducing turbidity and improving microbiologic quality. Usually, sand filters are constructed such as having a top layer being very fine sand and the bottom layer consisting of large gravel. Now you have to have a little exit hole at the bottom. So for a community household sand filter, you need about a two meter depth and depending on the amount of water needed, the diameter is adjusted. If you had to do with an emergency sand filter, well, it's recommended that you take some bucket that's slightly larger than five gallons or a bucket that's 20 liters in size. Put four inches of gravel on the bottom, which is about 10 centimeters. Then take a wire, put it above that, and then a cotton cloth, and then put another wire mesh on top of that. So you have basically a cotton cloth sandwich between two layers of wire mesh. If you don't have the cotton cloth, maybe you could use grass or something like that. Eh, there's a lot of survival books that talk about it. Then you can add an additional 10 inches or 23 centimeters of sand at the top. You can then stack buckets one on top of another if you're really wigged and scared. <laughs> and I tried this in the backcountry and I've put charcoal from the fire pit, activated charcoal if you will, and it's worked pretty good. <laughs> there is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you. Just for super chicken. <laughs> At least I didn't get sick, but I don't know about doing this in a developing country for my primary water needs. But again, if there's not a huge suspicion for water contamination, it could work in a pinch, and it sounds like Giardia can be taken care of. So pretty good survival technique, and it carries an evidence grade of 1B. As far as commercial water filtration techniques, that's your portable water filter. Filtration under the right circumstances has a 1A recommendation. Household bleach. It is 5% sodium hypochlorite. Household bleach for disinfection is advocated by the World Health Organization and the CDC as a mainstay of large-scale community, individual, household, and emergency use during disasters. Now, there's a lot of data for the effectiveness of good old household bleach in remote settings. You're going to kill all those viruses. Protozoan cysts are a little more resistant than enteric bacteria and enteric viruses. However, Giardia is inactivated by field doses of halogens. I'm speaking again of those nasty cysts. Now, cryptosporidium cysts are more resistant to halogens and cryptosporidium cysts are an emergency because they are 
resistant, yes, resistant to those halogens, to iodine, to chlorine. And in the inactivation of those cryptosporidium cysts, well, that's not very good with the common doses of field iodine and chlorine used in typical field water disinfection. Parasitic eggs from Ascaris are also resistant. Generally, a drop of household bleach in a liter of quart of water is pretty sufficient. Contact time is going to be variable depending on the water temperature and even water pH, but generally, you're probably gonna be just fine if you wait at least 60 minutes, given the table which discusses 20, whatever those are, 20 enteric viruses and longer if you're worried about Giardia. You can also use more chlorine, but obviously, you don't wanna use too much. There's also discussion about iodine tabs, initially developed by the military, did you know that? For quick disinfection with a short holding time of 10 to 20 minutes. But again, the colder the water, the longer the contact time has to be. And of course, more turbid water requires a longer contact time. So filter that water, get rid of that turbidity in the particulate matter as best you can. Again, iodine tabs, you can use half a tab or one tab and two liters. So half a tab and one liter, one tab and two liters if the water isn't too cold because contact time could be as short as 30 minutes if you're worried about some interesting viruses like Coxsackie virus. Hmm, that's off the wall according to the table. But for Giardia, disinfection with iodine can take two hours. Now we might worry about iodine toxicity and so people with thyroid disorders, pregnant women should probably avoid iodine. If you want to improve the taste and you want to clarify the water, add vitamin C after the disinfection process is completed. Now there are some improvised techniques. It could include what PJs have used in the past, potassium permanganate. This hasn't really been proven for its effectiveness, so there's not a strong recommendation, but PJs state that if you make the potassium permanganate, which is also quite caustic, into a very weak tea solution, you're probably okay. You can also, and I don't know if you knew this, you can actually start fires with potassium permanganate, but I'm not going to talk to you about that right now. Now in Europe, if you happen to be in Europe, you won't find things like iodine, but you will find these tabs, chlorine dioxide, and they manufacture it under names like Micropure. It's very potent and it contains 6.4% sodium chlorate as an active ingredient. The nice thing about chlorine dioxide is it doesn't have taste or odor. It is really good against those cryptosporidium oocytes, and it's far superior than chlorine for a virus and parasite eradication. However, you have to do four hours of contact time to achieve dependable disinfection. And you have to protect chlorine dioxide treated water from sunlight. Chlorine dioxide for water disinfection has a grade of 1A, but sorry, I can't tell you how long you can actually store that chlorine dioxide treated water. Now silver ion, they discussed that, evidence grade of 1B. Hydrogen peroxide, probably it's too weak. At a 3% concentration, higher concentrations, it'll boing, and so it's not practical for field use. Citrus juice, now that's interesting. I guess there's some demonstrated antibacterial effects, but there's not a lot of info in the paper about this technique. So in planning for modern living, in addition to the electrician and the carpenter and the plumber, be sure to call your Culligan man. All right. Hey, Culligan man. And lastly, there's an electrolysis technique or a mixed species disinfectant. I'm not advertising any companies, but one company or device you might have heard of is a Myox, M-I-O-X water purifier using electrolysis. Now all you have to do is pass a current 
through a simple brine salt solution. It's a little bit of a hassle because you have to take the grains of the solute and then you have to test its efficacy for water disinfection once you've made the solute solution. It's a little bit clunky, but evidently a combination of chlorine dioxide, ozone superoxides, and hypochlorous acids are the secret sauce. And it appears that the evidence for this sort of technique is 1B. There's some other technology with titanium dioxide discussed, but there's not a lot of discussion on it. And I don't think they're talking about titanium dioxide nanoparticles found in sunscreens. Nope. So don't throw a bunch of sunscreen in your water to disinfect it. That isn't going to work and it's probably going to taste horrible. So let's take this off for a landing. What if you have to disinfect your water? Well, the authors say, Basically, halogens, they're not that effective. I repeat, not effective for killing cryptosporidium. So cryptos, nope. And this is at drinking water concentrations in microfilters for a virus removal. And I actually want to add that if you are worried about spirochetes such as leptospira, they may require more than a microfilter because on one side, on their short side, they can be very thin longitudinally when they go through a pore. Okay guys, a little postscript. Got a confession to make. I totally nerded out after doing this 30-minute article and what I found was doing a PubMed search and other searches was there's not a whole lot of information with backcountry and travel use water purification. A lot of this stuff actually came from older than 10-15 years ago. Having said that, I think we can summarize really nicely from the literature and even some of the literature in chemistry and geology, which really goes into some amazing detail on this stuff. Well, look at the CDC website under healthy water, and you will find an excellent table that takes drinking water treatment methods for backcountry and travel use. And it talks about the contaminant, which would be protozoa, such as cryptosporidium. We know that Giardia is pretty good, but cryptosporidium is the new protozoa to deal with. But of course, yes, we have Giardia. We also have the bacteria, those dreaded Campylobacter, Salmonella, Shigella, E. coli, and the viruses. Remember, boiling water, that is the best thing we can do. If boiling water is not a feasible option, the most effective pathogen reduction method in untreated or poorly treated drinking water is combining treatment using filtration and disinfection. And when we talk about disinfection, that could be iodine or chlorine or chlorine dioxide. Well, it looks like if you had to choose the two, chlorine dioxide is winning. The filtration, all right, if you use that alone, it's not going to do so great with the viruses unless you can get those super duper filtration systems that I talked about earlier. If you were to use chlorine dioxide as a solo disinfection technique, remember to pre-treat or pre-filter that water. And remember that cryptosporidium isn't quite as vulnerable to chlorine dioxide. So the CDC says, look, take filtration, combine it with chlorine dioxide, and you're going to do just fine. Heavy metals and toxins aren't covered with these methods, but having read some of the chemistry and geology literature, it looks like this coagulation flocculation, in addition to using activated charcoal, can get rid of a lot of these crazy metals, the cadmiums, the mercuries, the leads, and all this other gobbledygook that has been used industrially. And it might get rid of some of those petrochemicals. The last thing I do want to emphasize is that when we add chemicals to our water, there are some byproducts that are formed as well. 
for instance, I was looking at chlorine, and if you put a lot, a lot, a lot of chlorine into water, you can get weird things like chloroform and some of these other strange chlorates and chloramine. Does it do any damage to the DNA? Well, so far, nothing's been reported, but you never know. So remember that water that's been disinfected with iodine is not recommended for pregnant women. And frankly, we don't know what the effects are for little kids either. Don't use it for people with thyroid disease, known hypersensitivity to iodine, or continuous use for more than a few weeks at a time. And lastly, in addition to using the appropriate drinking water treatment methods, you can also protect yourself and those other loved ones from waterborne illness by what? Burying human waste 8 to 12 inches deep and at least 200 feet away from natural waters. And please practice good personal hygiene. sad story to tell you it may hurt your feelings a bit last night when i walked into my bathroom i stepped in a big pile of shaving cream be nice and clean shave every day and you'll always look keen our baby fell out of the window Live comes from the service of Wilderness Environmental Medicine, which is the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society, published by Elsevier, copyright by the Wilderness Medical Society, all rights reserved. WMS.org for any questions, CME content, and what have you. See you next year. See you next decade. <laughs>